1: <laughs> I think it is. Baby steps. <laughs> Baby steps.
2: Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec my name is joey schultz and i'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts first up the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100 it's matt morgan
0: hello friends i still haven't been fired yet
2: next the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins dana roach welcome everybody and I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC is a fantastic deck building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on EDHREC Cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas?
1: Silence. We're discussing silence and magic.
0: We're, we're not talking about anything today. But today, actually, we, we do have a topic, actually, despite our awkward silence. Yeah, we do have a topic. It's, it's card types and data trends over time. So we're going to get into some of that exclusive proprietary information that you won't get from the site.
2: Yeah, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of graphs that show us some metrics over time, such as card type distribution, or the number of colors over time, convert to mana cost over time, things like that, and we're going to give as many observations as we can about the data that we find there. We're going to start up with the average card type distribution over time. We'll include all of these graphs in the show notes, so hopefully you can follow along with us there since it is kind of a visual thing and we're in an audio medium, but we'll try and describe these graphs as much as we can to you guys. So looking at the average card types over time, what do you guys first notice about this graph?
1: It doesn't change. Yeah, there's a lot of stability there for the last five years it's going back. Yeah, this
2: particular graph that we're looking at is going back as far as 2014. And we all can kind of note that there's a relative stability of card types from 2014 all the way up here to 2018. In specific, the numbers that we're looking at is that on average, EDH decks tend to have about 25 creatures... 9 instants, 9 sorceries, 9 enchantments, 13 artifacts, and 3 planeswalkers. And as we look at this graph, we can see that those numbers are almost completely unchanged over the course of, what, 4 years? That's, honestly, I'm pretty surprised.
1: Yeah, there's one weird spike, it looks like, early 2016, um, where we see a spike in the amount of artifacts being played. And I was trying to figure out what that would be, and that's when the partial Paris mulligan to vancouver mulligan change happened so i'm wondering if maybe people like threw a few extra mana rocks into their deck to compensate but then it goes away pretty quickly shortly after that so who knows what that is but yeah aside from that like shorts that was a little spike there almost nothing jumps out
2: yeah, that's just it. There's a lot of stability. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of variation in the card type. So even when we get new sets and they're all about creature types, for example, with Ixalan, it was a very creature-focused set with all of the tribal mechanics running around. Even that didn't push numbers in favor one way or the other of folks running more creatures. Or having spell-heavy sets didn't bias people in favor of running more spells. Or even Theros didn't push people to run more enchantments when that was an enchantment or at least a largely enchantment-based set. So it's interesting to see that there's a lot of stability over the course of all these years.
1: Well, and even the few times, like I said before, the few times we do see like a little blip, it usually course-corrects pretty quickly.
2: Right.
0: Yeah, well, Dana, you brought up a good point with the mulligan change, and at least in my playgroup, just what we did ourselves. We tried the new mulligans where you got your scry and all that. We didn't like it at all. We kind of gave up on that really quick and went back to the partial Paris, just... Ship three, keep your good four. We just want to play a good game. Like, I'd rather you know be friendly mulligans and not screw somebody out of like just getting to play the game entirely, than you know follow the the new you know unified rules, whatever you want to call them. So we got rid of that rule, and that might have been why people kind of adjusted, played you know maybe some more mana rocks, and then shifted back real quick because everywhere else that I've gone, at least in you know the the Missouri area where I play everybody else has kind of shifted back towards the partial Paris Mulligans
2: really that's interesting to hear I haven't encountered that ever since the change
0: yeah we we played it for maybe a week and just almost unanimously said let's go back because this is not as fun
1: now we still play with the Vancouver Mulligan but like by and large the response is no don't mull down to you know five maybe go to six but like if you're at six and you still hit a bad hand just take five full six or seven cards don't mull down to like five or something dumb yeah and have a terrible game so yeah it's kind of the same thing there it's like we haven't gone back to paris but it's also stayed much more casual than maybe i think was the intent so that might explain why that why that reversion happened
2: Yeah, commander players do tend to be a bit more forgiving, especially when it comes to mulligans like that. Uh, A really quick thing that jumped out to me here, looking at this graph, I noted the numbers earlier, the types of cards, like 25 creatures, 9 instants, 9 enchantments, things like that. And I did a little math, and adding them all up, this means that of the leftover card types that aren't being shown here, that being the land card type, there are only room for like 32 lands left, according to this graph. So I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts about the average number of lands that people do seem to be playing, which doesn't show up on this graph, but by process of elimination, we can determine people are owning only running 32 lands. What's that about? Do you guys think that number is too low, too high? What do you think?
1: Well, it's definitely too low. Yeah, that feels really light to me outside of, you know, CD, CEDH maybe. That's, that's too few lands.
2: Yeah, that was my first reaction as well. I don't know about you guys, but I tend to start at minimum at 37 lands. And hopefully go up to 39 if I can. I need those lands in my deck. I if I miss a land drop, I feel like I've immediately fallen out of the game.
0: Yeah, 37 is the magic number that I start with too, and kind of season that to taste. Like if it's a quicker deck, I might go to 36 lands, but I rarely, rarely go below 36. Like 37, maybe an extra one to 38 are the land is the land count that I run, unless it's a land-heavy deck like red green Omnath. I'll go up to 42.
1: Yeah, I, I think I've got 35 is the lowest land count I have, and I that's in my Edric deck with like a CMC of like 1.4. Most of, the rest of them are 36. I think my I have a three-color deck at 37, but 32 is really, really lean. Uh, although I would guess a lot of that might be, I mean, there's a lot of casual players out there who aren't probably going to shops and playing they're playing like in a pretty tight meta with you know three or four friends and it's been my experience i can't back this up with any kind of data but really casual players tend to run lean on lands just because they either have super forgiving mull rules or they just get in that mindset of i don't want to run lands there's so many fun spells to play
2: right and that's actually the metric that's most surprising to me is to see that especially after that mulligan change the the rule of the Mulligan change that the land count didn't seem to increase at all. That's kind of fascinating to me. Uh, We do want to stuff as many awesome cards as we can into our decks, but we need the resources to be able to actually play them. And even the pre-constructed decks nowadays, they tend to come with upwards of 37 lands. I've seen one that even has 40, I think. So it's it's interesting to me to see that over time, the number of lands has also stayed consistently too low. And I think that's the type of metric that we should try and steer towards correcting if possible yeah for sure uh just for our own personal metas is there a card type that you guys have been playing more of lately or maybe less of the,
1: the one i've seen um that jumps out of me is, is probably planeswalkers and i think i play them a little more often which which is you know i used to play pretty much none in any of my decks and now i run one or two if it's a specific walker that fits a specific deck but i also think i see more than i did a couple years back
2: Yeah, that adds up with my experiences as well, particularly after Atraxa. But even in non-Atraxa decks, I'm seeing a lot more Planeswalkers as well. And that's kind of interesting to me, too. I I feel like maybe the attitude towards Planeswalkers is shifting a little bit. Every time that people see a Planeswalker, they're like, oh, I've got to kill it, which then immediately made a lot of people feel like, oh, Planeswalkers aren't that great in Commander. But maybe that reaction has softened a little bit now, so people are more willing to try them out.
1: Well, I think you also have situations like I first started playing Commander really heavily around Return to Ravnica, and if I use that as the break point of when I started playing, prior to that, there's only like, I guess I should have looked this up, but there's 15 or you know 18 Planeswalkers that just exist. Period. Prior to that, there's the ones from Innistrad block. There's what scars of Mirrodin. There's Lorwyn. There's Alara. I think that's it that has Planeswalkers in it. So you only have a finite amount of walkers. And only so many of them are are actually good enough to be playable. Whereas in the interim since then, you know, we've added another what, eight blocks in addition to having planeswalkers pop up on supplemental products, that kind of thing. So there's just more planeswalkers, meaning there's more good planeswalkers.
0: Yeah, I think just planeswalkers in general, they're they're a little less of a status symbol almost. Like I remember, you know, when I first got into Commander heavily, a little later than you, it was probably around like Born of the Gods era. You know, like Elspeth was like crazy expensive. All the, you know, there wasn't a $5 Planeswalker because they all were, you know, kind of hard to find. They're all played in standard. But since then, like, yeah, we've definitely gotten a rush of Planeswalkers and you can get, you know, $2 Jace, the really bad one. And just like the price tag on that for the more casual players, uh, I think that tends to, to encourage them to play a few more Planeswalkers in their decks.
1: They also have support cards they didn't used to have in the past, whether it's the Chain Veil or the various Oath of whatever from the Gatewatch that actually interact with Planeswalker cards in positive ways. And they also, there was a legendary change not long ago. So you can fetch them with Captain Sisse, or they draw you cards with Reki. You have commanders like Jeru that actually will go fetch you Planeswalker. That's his ability. Or Joira who draws you cards now that just came out in Dominaria. So you have more interaction as well from commanders that specifically do a thing with a planeswalker and that's new also.
0: Yeah, you have call the gatewatch and deploy the gatewatch and all those that came out in like the Battle for Zendikar Shadows time too that you know they directly interact with planeswalkers you know when they were trying to make the the magic story line up very central around the gatewatch. So yeah, just a lot of support for them. There's a lot of planeswalkers in general now too, so a lot of things add up.
2: Yeah, it's interesting to see our personal metas and the, the changes that have happened there and compare them against the data that we have that shows that the number of planeswalkers isn't really changing over time. And that's that's pretty fascinating just to compare our biased meta against the, the hard data, and that's, that's pretty fun. I'm going to move on to another graph now, and that is the number of colors over time. To be clear, this isn't the types of colors, so we're not going to be measuring, oh, more people are building white decks, or more people are building white and blue decks, or things like that. But we're looking at a graph that tells us the number of colors that people tend to be building in their decks, whether they're building a monocolored deck, or a two-color deck, a three-color, a four, five, or even a colorless. Do one of you guys want to run down the current percentages for today?
1: Sure, I can handle that. Um, So currently, 1% of decks in the database are colorless, 20% are single-color. Thirty-five are two color, thirty-one percent are three color, six percent are four color, and seven percent are five color.
2: I don't know about you guys, but I was also surprised to see some of these percentages. Does any one of them jump out at you?
1: The the two color percentage was, um, I guess, thirty-five is a pretty healthy amount. But I, for some reason, was thinking it was going to be forty-five, maybe even fifty. So I thought I was surprised two color and three color were as close together as they are.
2: Yeah, I was surprised to see that three color is actually less than two color. When I first started playing the game, three color was all the rage. And even more particularly, I'm surprised to see that 20% of decks are, are that are being built nowadays are a single color deck. That strikes me as being very, very high.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that the four color decks have dropped down a little bit. You know, they when the four color commander decks came out, they were super popular. And you can see on the graph that just huge explosion around that time that they popped up but they've really dovetailed off since then. Yeah, I kind of assumed that two and three color just combined would take up the lion's share of the format.
2: Right. You mentioned that spike around November 2016 when the Commander 2016 product came out with all of those four color commanders and the partner commanders, the ones that we were talking about last episode. Around that spike, let me see if I can pull up some numbers for that. At that time, about 24% of decks being built were four color, about 26 were three color, and about... were two-color, and that is also kind of an interesting metric to see. Looking at this graph, we can see that the four-color space really ate into a lot of that three-color and two-color deck building. The three-color decks I mentioned at that time were being built around 26% of the time, but the month previous, it had been up at 32%. The two-color decks were down from 38% on the previous month. So we can see that those four-color commanders, they didn't take a lot of attention away from five-color people, they took a lot of attention away from the three and the two color folks. And and that's really fascinating to me as well. I think if I had been blindly guessing at these numbers, I would have expected that the four color demand would have eaten up the space from five color and not from three color or two.
0: Yeah. And when you can see on the graph too, kind of as, uh, as the four color decks have kind of waxed and waned a little bit, it's since then, the monocolor decks have kind of been that give and take, uh, the, the two and three colors since then have stayed more or less the same, but the single color decks have been the ones that'll eat into the four color as they, as you know times passed.
1: And also, I didn't really think of this until I was looking at the list of five color commanders, but they tend to do a really, really specific thing that's built around that particular commander. So it's not like you can really turn your Reaper King deck into something that's a four color deck, or you can't really turn your Sliver Queen deck into a you know, four color variant of that. So I think I wouldn't have thought of that initially, but upon like seeing that people were not downshifting five colors to four, I went and did a little bit of looking to see if I could figure out why that is, and that's the one thing that would jump out at me the most is none of those five-color commanders really lend themselves to shifting that deck down into a four-color.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a lot harder to shift Child of Alara to Brea than it is to shift Sharoom up to Brea. Right. And as Matt noted... That spike has really tapered off, and that's another surprising thing for me as well. We were looking at the 24% of four-color decks around that Commander 2016 time, but that's tapered down to only 6% of decks being built nowadays are four-colors. And for my own personal meta, that doesn't feel right. There are four-color decks everywhere, but they're also the same four-color decks, so there don't seem to be as many people still routinely building new four-color decks as much as they are with, back with the two and the three-color.
1: Yeah, my experience on four-color is the ones that survive. So you can see that kind of shift where a bunch of four-color decks pop up and then it kind of you know merges back down a little bit and, and tapers off. A lot of the taper, at least based on where I play, was in terms of four-color partner configurations. There's Most of the four-color decks I see are still the four-color commanders.
2: Yeah, that's a good point as well. I tend to see more Attraxes than I do Rehan plus Ishai. Matt, I know that you also have a note here about a spike that we saw around the release of Hour of Devastation. Do you want to tell us about that?
0: Yeah, so one thing that I thought was kind of peculiar was monocolor decks, they've always kind of hovered, you know, within a few percent of, you know, kind of that 20% mark or so. But around the time that Hour of Devastation came out, um, they jumped up from about like 18% to 30%. Um, which is the highest it's ever been. Also, ironically, the lowest that the four color decks had been in, in the same time span. I thought it was just curious because, you know, Hour of Devastation or not, uh, yeah, Hour of De- Devastation, it brought out like a few good cards, but nothing really like that jumps out at you that you know you really want to build around. There was the Mono Red Commander, but that was about it.
2: Right. That was Neheb the Eternal.
0: The Eternal, yeah, the one that starts to make you all the mana.
2: Yeah, it turns damage into mana, really powerful guy, but I can't think of too many other Hour of Devastation commanders that came out that have really blown my meta away, but it does seem like we saw quite the spike there, and that's another interesting metric.
1: Yeah, nobody nobody was racing out to build their Jeru mono-white Planeswalker <laughs> decks. No. No one except you. Right. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Alrighty, let's take a break from all of these graphs and data and percentages to talk about different percentages. We're going to do that head-to-head segment that, that I like so much. Dano, do you mind starting us off? Give us two cards that are kind of similar, and we'll have to guess which of them is more popular overall.
1: Sure. So this was kind of inspired a little bit by my Matt. I don't know if it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago you brought up Boros Charm in comparison. I think it was you. Mm-hmm. So I got thinking about the charm cycle, and I'm like, you know what? I really should run more charms. I was looking at them, and then it made me wonder, okay, well, I, I was pretty sure Boros Charm was the most frequently played charm. So then I went to see what the other ones are that popped up. And two and three is split between two charms. And I'm going to see if you guys can figure out which of the two it is. Is Rakdos charm or is it charm the second most popular charm in existence? My, my
0: immediate thought was Rakdos charm because it, it's a little bit of grave hate. It helps out you know, against those token decks. Fellow co-writer uh, Andrew Cummings loves Rakdos charm. Uh, and he kind of embodies a lot of that casual mindset. So I'm going to go with Rakdos Charm.
2: Right. So Rakdos Charm has the option of either destroying an artifact, exiling someone's graveyard, or having, let's see, what is it? They are dealt damage for each creature they control. Yes. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Whereas Is it Charm can counter a spell unless they pay two. Non-creature. A non-creature spell. A non-creature spell. Can draw you two cards and discard two cards. And what's the last mode on Is it?
0: Deal two damage
2: to target creature. So it's a shock no, that's, to a creature. That's not very good. So I hope that it's Rakdos Charm, because Rakdos Charm can be a win condition against token players. Is that correct? It
1: is indeed Rakdos Charm. It's in yeah. 8,000 decks. Is Izzet Charm is way back there at just under 5,000.
0: So I got righty. some payback for your trick question last week.
1: Well, And then the, <laughs> then right behind Is it Charm is Golgari Charm, which was the one that... I was thinking might wind up being number two. Before even looking at the data, I thought maybe Golgari Charm would be the second most common one, but it's way down at number four.
2: Right. Golgari Charm is also really useful. That destroys enchantments, gives things minus one, or can regenerate your field, right? Yep. That's mm-hmm. really useful. That seems a lot more useful than Is it?
1: The one thing I would yeah. say, and I'm wondering how much of a difference this makes, but it might be enough, Rakdos Charm and Izzet Charm are both something you can grab at instant speed with the Sunforger because they have red in them. So I I don't know how much of a difference that makes, but I've seen that done with both of those charms. So I've seen it actually happen. So clearly it does. So I wonder if that doesn't slightly tweak the numbers on those two. Alrighty. And Boros charm as well. So the, the top three are all ones you can grab with the Sunforger.
2: Alrighty, I'm going to go next. My pick this week for head-to-head will be in a Crucifix God of Horizons deck. This is one of my favorite decks, that god that can give you infinite cards in your hand and lets you hold on to all of your mana rather than letting it evaporate from your mana pool. The two cards in specific that I'm talking about are Blue Sun Zenith, which is X blue, 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 target player draws X cards, and then you shuffled the Blue Sun Zenith back into your library, versus Stroke of Genius, which is X two and a blue for target player draws x cards which of those is more popular these two massive draw spells in blue
0: in crew fixes it all mana stays in your pool or does it all convert
2: to colorless uh both if mana would empty from your mana pool instead it becomes
1: colorless and he holds on to it for you
0: okay i'm gonna guess stroke of genius then just because it only has
1: the one blue in there yeah stroke of genius is definitely easier to run in that deck man but i feel and, and i I think it came in one of the Commander Precons. I don't think Blue Sun ever did. But I just see a lot of Blue Sun Zenith get played. And I want to say, even though Stroke is probably a better card in that deck, I could see Blue Sun Zenith being more popular just because I think it's a more popular card in general. So I'm going to go with Blue Sun Zenith, even though maybe it shouldn't be.
2: Dana, you are correct, mm. and that's actually a lot of the same reasoning that I have. So, Blue Sun Zenith shows up in 66% of Krufix decks, where Stroke of Genius only shows up in 44% of Krufix decks. And like Matt noted, the Stroke of Genius is a lot easier for me to cast in that deck, but the Blue Sun Zenith is more popular, which is kind of weird. The triple blue can be a really hefty cost, especially if I want to hold up counter magic like a Cryptic Command. And I don't feel as though necessarily the ability to shuffle the Blue Sun Zenith back into your library and play it at a later time. I'm not sure that that's 22% better than Stroke of Genius. In either case, I just want to draw a lot of cards. Or, better yet, I want to force other people to draw like 200 cards, which is a really fun win condition. But yeah, it was interesting to me to see the difference in popularity between those two cards that are almost exactly the same. That's fair. Matt, how about your pick?
0: So, I have two cards that... I know Dana specifically is poo-pooed on, but all three of us all three of us have, have mentioned that we don't really like these two cards, but they're insanely popular, so I figured I'd, I'd bring it up. So, this is across all decks, according to EDHREC, but here we go. We got Evolving Wilds versus Temple of the False God. Evolving Wilds. similar are similar at all. Uh, they're, they're both crappy lands, and that's <laughs> how similar they are. Uh, they're both lands that I think we all have kind of said people could play a little less of.
2: So to be clear, Evolving Wilds isn't a terrible card. When you need fixing, you need fixing. But I think the conclusion that we have come to in our deck building is that running an Evolving Wilds in a two-color deck is often not exactly what you need to be doing. You could just play, if, for example, I'm in a green and black deck, instead of playing an Evolving Wilds, I could run Foul Orchard. It just enters the battlefield tapped and taps for either green or black. And that's not a very exciting land, but once that lands in play, it gives me either of the colors I need, whereas the Evolving Wilds will give me a tapped land, and it will only give me one of the colors that I need. And thinning the deck with the fetch land isn't really perceptible in a commander deck with 100 cards, so that's why we've come to not like the Evolving Wilds or the Terramorphic Expanse a whole lot. In comparison to Temple of the False God, which isn't really a comparison but yeah there it's another land that we're kind of we're kind of iffy on i'm gonna have to give it to evolving wilds i think that that one's very quintessential for people who are on a budget
1: i would i think i'm gonna agree with you there even though i i still do have at least one temple of the false god in a deck i haven't been running evolving wilds for a long time that's actually not even true i do have it in one deck a landfall deck just because i'm too cheap to buy an off colored fetch But those have been packed into so many sets, Evolving Wilds, including so many pre-cons, although Temple has two, But Evolving Wilds is never going to actually burn you and make you take it out, and Temple is going to burn people. So those factors would make me say Evolving Wilds is in more decks.
0: Yeah, well, you both are right, but not by a whole lot. Okay. So Uh Evolving Wilds is in 86,182 decks, uh, while Temple of the False God is in 82,000 938 so in the grand scheme of things the percentage is not that far off about five percent difference that's still so many decks for two cards that i think we all, all of us can agree you can do better and then you know a lot of the times these people are playing that you know those two lands
2: yeah they do both have their places i mentioned for example i have that crew fix deck and i tend to get a lot of land so temple of the false god is really powerful there but we also see Temple of the False God show up in a bunch of 4 color decks where it can't really provide the mana fixing that you need, and that's kind of awkward. So it could stand to see a less, a little less play. And the Evolving Wilds, for a lot of the reasons that I mentioned earlier, unless you're playing a Landfall deck, you could be running a card that gives you access to both of your colors that you need. So that's another one that could maybe stand to see a little less play as well. Yeah, so he, that is an interesting. You brought
0: character. up a really good point, Joey. If you, if you're playing the thin to win game in Commander. You need to take a chill pill.
1: <laughs> well, I can actually link. There, there's an article, and I think it was on Star City Games, and we'll we'll put it in the show notes, and I'll put it out there, where, where a, a guy a few years back went through and did all the math on deck thinning, and, and it's based on a 60-card deck even, but even in 60 cards, it's just not mathematically something that matters at all. So in 100 cards, it absolutely does not. Now, that's not to say there isn't reasons where you want to shuffle maybe if you've got you know a scroll rack in your deck or... Particularly land tax as well. I mean, there's there's situations where like having that shuffle effect is useful from the fetch, but yeah, thinning definitely is not something that matters at all in commander.
0: Yeah, it's definitely the, a better shuffle effect than it is a a thinning effect because I I one thing that perturbs me is when people brainstorm lock, brainstorm lock themselves. But if you're playing evolving wilds, it is a free shuffle. I'll give you guys that. But I think that's probably its its best use is is as a shuffle instead of a. A thinning effect.
2: Alrighty. So those were a couple of interesting comparisons, but now we're going to move back into some of those graphs that we've generated. Particularly, this next graph that we're looking at is the number of legendary creatures in a commander deck over time. So the average number of legendary creatures in EDH decks. One of you guys want to take it away. What is this slope graph that we're looking at?
0: So the slope graph here that tracks back same amount of time back to September of two thousand four or two thousand fourteen. Excuse me, and you can see. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it slowly started to build up a little bit. It started about just over three and a half legendary creatures per deck. Now we're somewhere about four and a quarter, almost four and a half legendary creatures per deck. There was a big spike around the time, again, that uh, the four color commander decks came out, uh, jumped up to, you know, a little over four and a half. But since then, it's kind of slowly inched its way up, given a little, taken a little um, over time. So it's going up and then we have a new set coming out with Dominaria that just released, that's probably going to have a pretty big impact on those numbers.
2: Right, that's an interesting question. We don't see any immediate spike now in this current month, even though Dominaria has just released. But how long do you think it'll take until we do see a spike from Dominaria with all of those legends running around?
1: I think we'll see a spike in the next month or two. I, I think people probably rushed online to you know make their, their new um, boring... Slimefoot deck or their boring Maldrotha deck or their maybe their super cool new Joyra deck. But, <laughs> but I see what you did there. But maybe they weren't in such a hurry to like update their Afaro list with RAF, or maybe they weren't in a huge hurry to update their SRAM list or or Nizan list with Danatha Capuchin. Um so I think over the course of the next month you'll start seeing some of those Dominaria legends in decks get updated, but I just think people probably weren't Quite in the hurry they they were to put that online as you were with a whole brand new deck.
0: Oh, so I think that's a really good point, Dana, that you said is people will rush out to build the new decks, but they're a little slower to update the old decks. You know that new and exciting factor is definitely a thing. So people, you know, build those big new splashy commanders with big new splashy effects, or Drotha that just gets you all the value you could ever dream of, and just you know the greatest thing ever. <laughs> but yeah, so people are you know they're a little slow to to you know, revisit their old decks. Uh, and I think that's definitely a factor. Jason, our content manager, you know, on his podcast, Brainstorm Brewery, all the time mentions uh, people are a little slow to invent, you know, the new tech. So it takes a little bit of time to to see all these new trends coming out. I think it's going to be at least a month, you know, once, you know, the commander players start getting their hands on the new cards too. They're not exactly the, the people that rush out and buy, you know, $40 Karns, for example. So it's a little slower to move and see those trends happen. But, when they do, you definitely will be able to notice. Yeah, and Dana,
2: remember not to, you know, not not to speak too ill of Muldrotha, because Matt is currently winning that bet that we had yeah, in the area set. I'm episode. dang right, I I'm mean. definitely not winning that bet. I know that. Yeah, he's actually Muldrotha's showing up in more than Slimefoot and Droider Yeah, so I saw
1: that. That's
0: I'm a man of the people.
2: So getting back to this graph really quick, I personally am surprised, and I guess I keep on saying that I'm surprised by all of these statistics, but I was shocked to see that the number of legendary creatures on average is so low. It, As we mentioned, that graph is sloping upward. We can see it went from 3.5 and it's approaching 4.5 now over the course of a couple of years. But I feel like if I were to take a glance through any of my decks, I would see way more than 4.5 legendary creatures inside it. What do you guys think?
1: Well, I think if you think of, if you think of the amount of legendary creatures in terms of the entire deck, 4.5 is not that large of a number. But if you think of it as a percentage of the amount of creatures that people are running, I mean, you know, what's the average deck running? Maybe 20-ish creatures. Um, most of mine are 25. running. twenty five. Is it 25?
0: 25, sir.
1: All right. Well, most most of mine. My... Yeah, we went over that just earlier, We did. Dana. That's right. Come on. Yeah, duh. <laughs> Short-term memory. Um, <laughs> that's yeah, fun. exactly. He's old. <laughs> um, but, but I'm a good-looking old. Um, but mo- <laughs> but most of mine are running twenty, so that's where I came with that number. But even at twenty five, four point five of twenty five is still not a bad percentage.
2: Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's true. And maybe I'm also a little biased because in my personal decks, I've mentioned I do like playing a lot of reanimators, such as with my Mimeoplasm or with Marin of Clan Neltoth. So the things that I like to revive are Jinkataxius or Shieldred or Vorinclex. I've got a whole bunch of really awesome legendary creatures. You that say I like to
0: I'm mean, but you're the over. one reanimating Vorinclex. So just. <laughs> easy
2: <laughs> you are a mean mean man mr morgan don't worry that, about it
0: <laughs> yeah that's fine but yeah i just thought that was worth pointing out that you're the one reanimating two of the like most ridiculous praetors around so
1: i mean i think i think the one thing we're really missing here and the data just doesn't exist is the cutoff point here is what 2014 I would love to see it go back another two years because in July of 2013, that's when the rule was changed. So the legendary check only occurs on a per player basis. Because prior mm-hmm. to that, you had situations where if someone else played the same legend, yours died. But more importantly, if someone played a clone, so clone was essentially a kill spell prior to that. So someone cloned your legend, it was just dead. So there was a lot of incentive to not run legends um, in Commander prior to 2013. And I, I would like to see the data before that, because I was—I I would bet we had a bit of a jump after that rule change.
2: Yeah, I would actually love to see that as well, especially if I could compare it against the number of clones in an average deck, Right. Because I, I bet that the number of Legends, like you said, would jump up, and then the number of clones would just
0: as much like fall down. It's got to be the most random report we could ever ask Don to run is, hey, can you see how many clone effects people play <laughs> what well, I, I don't like, know if he has have data going so confused right
1: i don't know if he has data going back that far which is probably why that's the cutoff date but um yeah i, I bet you'd see a, a a dip in clones at the same time all righty the, the other thing i was thinking about here is w- one of the trends over the history of magic is we've seen creatures get stronger um in large part because they were probably too weak early on but the games definitely moved to more creature-based combat and creature-based win cons for the most part, over the course of the last, you know, five, ten years. Well, obviously, you know, legendaries are creatures, and if you're making a creature with a real flashy, strong, splashy ability, there's a maybe a tendency to put that on a legendary body, assign it to a lore character's name. So I wonder if that also is, isn't part of the reason we've seen some upward creep here, because when they make a cool ability like on the Gitrog monster, well, of course you're going to put it on a legendary creature. It's a legendary ability. And then they're also designing for commander a little bit more, it seems like. So then it's a card that can also be a commander. So I think we're seeing some design stuff going on that kind of is making people run more legends.
2: Mm, That's a really good point as well. Especially now, as you mentioned, Wizards is building more with an eye towards commander. So that is a pretty interesting thing to see. And I guess I'm also kind of happy to see that number go up. But that might just be because of my own personal aesthetic around the elder dragon highlander format i i kind of like having legends in this legend based format
1: yeah i I agree that's probably just i'm a fan of the aesthetic of that that's one of the things i liked most about the dominaria pre-release um i just thought it was fun seeing so many like named characters that you knew from the history of the game on the field at once
2: yeah for sure Alrighty, boys, let's move on to our last graph today, and that is the average converted mana cost over time. We're looking at another graph with a slope here, and the slope is very dramatic, but don't be fooled when you look at it, because the slope itself is measuring by every 0.5, so it it is an impressive slope, but we could also stand to you know, make sure that you're evaluating it the correct way. It's not like the drop-off that we're witnessing here is from 10 mana average converted mana cost all the way down to two. The numbers that we're actually seeing is that over the course of several years, back to 2014, where all of this data is starting for us, we're seeing a gradual dip in converted mana cost from around 3.75 to about 3.5 for average converted mana cost in a commander deck. And that is another interesting metric to see that it does appear over time, the the cost of cards
1: that we're playing is going down. What do you guys think of all this? Um, Joyce said that to to not, you know, look at the the graph as being too dramatic, but I also think maybe it is a little dramatic in that it takes a pretty big change in your deck to swing the average CMC from 3.75 to 3.5. Like you're you're putting a quite a few smaller cards in place to actually make that move. So, while the numbers, you know, make the dip look stronger. Also, if you really think about it, that's a decent amount of changes you have to make at that level to swing that curve that direction.
2: That's true. You can't just change one Ulamog into an is it signet and that won't affect the the average in your deck. You have to change quite a number of cards. So that is a, a thing that I failed to mention. So that's a good a good thing to bring up.
0: Yeah, but I th- I think it's just evidence of just how much more efficient a lot of cards have gotten over time? You know, you have a lot more one and two mana removal spells. Uh, your creatures are getting a lot better. Artifacts are getting a lot better. So just in general, the format's becoming a lot more lean, a lot more efficient. Like I said, and and I think just the evolution of decks. You know, people always are improving those older decks, and so naturally they're going to move on from you know your your is it key rune to an is it signet. So that drops it a little bit. Just little things like that, people kind of, you know, at least in my meta, it's gotten a little more competitive just in the quality and the efficiency of the cards. Um, and that's just because, you know, one of my buddies gets a better card, so I have to get a better card or a cheaper card to battle that out Then somebody else has to get a better card because I'm getting better. Um, I think it's just evolution of, of Commander decks, too. You know, the, the format itself has is, is grown and evolved in the past four years. Um, I think this is just evidence of people kind of becoming better deck builders, information's more readily available. So I, I think it's natural, I think it's good, because it shows that people are, are hopefully at least getting better at just building decks in general. Well, and that's something funny for
2: me too. Uh, once again, we draw upon our own experiences and our own personal metas, and I, I can attest that the types of high-cost cards that I'm playing has has weaned down a lot. I mean, I'm running a bunch of reanimator decks that will bring really expensive cards into play on the cheap, but in my other decks, like I mentioned, I do have that Kruphix deck, and I'm no longer really able to run the really high-cost spells that will get me a bunch of lands, and I've exchanged them all out in favor of cheaper mana ramp. For example, I'm no longer running things like, what was it, Verdant Confluence or Nissa's Renewal, or even really Explosive Vegetation, now I feel much more like I need to run cards like Nature's Lore or Farseek or even just the standard Rampant Growth because I need that ramp to happen very early on in the game. And for me, it feels as though that's because (coughs) the speed of the format has increased a little bit. That is just my own personal bias, but it does seem as though the numbers do sort of trend that way. The cheaper the average converted mana cost over time is, the thought would go that the faster the format is as well what do you guys think has that been a thing that you've noticed in your own metas as well
1: oh for sure um in my metas and in my own personal deck building and one of the things i've noticed and this wasn't an intentional thing but like when a new card comes out and i'll use uh, Traxos, uh, uh scourge of krug which is when in dominaria it's a four drop legendary artifact creature so i want to put that in my Reiki history of kamigawa deck because it's a legend like, okay, well, I'm going to add that. So, I need to drop a creature. So, the I, I noticed as I was looking through the list about what I wanted to pull out, the only creatures I was looking at were creatures that cost more than Tracks Plus of Crook, Scorch of Crook, excuse me. So, and then, I, and then I was like, sort of thinking about that. I'm like, huh, well, subconsciously, whenever I've been making changes to decks, I almost always look to make a change in a way that lowers the CMC.
2: Mm, that's another. <laughs> that's a really good point. I think that's something I'm not even aware of doing, but it matches up with my experience as well. When I'm looking for other cards to replace, another example would be I have a mono black big mana drana deck, and when I'm looking for other draw spells to include, for example, Night's Whisper, a two mana draw spell, I'm not looking at anything lower than that. I'm only looking at the cards that cost more. So I took out that Promise of Power, which is a five mana draw spell, in exchange for this two mana draw spell, like the cards that I'm looking to exclude always end up costing more than the ones that I'm looking to put back in. And that that, that is an unconscious habit of mine. So
1: <laughs> thank you for diagnosing that trend within yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't noticed I was doing it either, but I, it's something I clearly make a decision to do. And then the other thing that jumped out at me was, because um, Gilded Lotus was getting a rep- or got a reprint in Dominaria. And that's a card, you know, f- five mana for a mana rocket tap for three of any color. That's been kind of an EDH... I don't know what you call it a staple, but like it's been in a lot of decks over the years. And the price has kind of crept up. So everyone was very happy to see it get a reprint to drop the price back down and make it much more affordable. Except for upon looking, I'm like, I'm not actually running Gilded Lotus in any of my decks anymore. I've turned that into, you know, Mind Stone or Everflowing Chalice or or what have you. So I'm like, huh, well it doesn't really matter. And then I then I was thinking, do I want it? Well, no, I don't want to run a five mana rock anymore. And that two years ago that wouldn't have been the case. Two years ago I'd have been elated to have a bunch of cheap Guild notices but now I'm just I'm not.
0: I think that you, you kind of touched on a good point too. Is you know the reprints in general, they're making all these cards that you know they were expensive because they're so rare or old or just in really high demand from 60 card formats. Um, I mean, how many mana drains do you have in your meta now compared to before they were, it was reprinted in iconic masters? Just little things like that. Just how they keep reprinting cards. You know, somebody does a draft and they get one of those awesome, cheap, efficient cards. Uh, They're going to throw it in a deck and it's just going to help contribute to this graph that we have here. So
2: one last question, looking at this average converted mana cost over time, do you guys expect the trend to continue downward or perhaps to reverse? Where about do you think that the average CMC over time would taper off?
1: I mean, I think it has to stop decreasing at some point. There's only so so lean you can make these decks and I do think most people aren't really looking to play CEDh and I, I have nothing against that particular format I just think most most players playing commander aren't trying to build their deck at that level they want to keep playing the way they're currently playing um, they just want to be better at better at that really um, so there's only so much tweaking you can do with that and at some point you're gonna we're gonna hit a wall kind of in terms of CMC. I don't know if we're entirely there yet, but um, I think at some point it kind of evens out.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a sticking point somewhere where it is specifically. I I think it's really, really hard to tell. We already saw, you know, the past few months, the average uh, CMC has jumped up just a hair. So maybe it started that rebound. It'll find its way, you know, somewhere in the middle. But one thing I've kind of noticed just on the curve is that in my meta and some of the playgroups and stores that I play at, People are running a lot of the a lot more cheap support cards and ramp spells that, you know, are on the cheaper end. And they're more focused on a few big payoff cards. So those payoff cards, you know, as there's more Paradox Engine cards that you can build around now, as opposed to back when, you know, Woodfall Primus was it for green. We're going to start seeing that, you know, kind of balance out. So I don't know. I don't know where it's going to be specifically. But yeah, there is definitely a sticking point where something's got to give.
1: Because there's for sure situations where like if you are playing a super competitive format, you're going to look at something like Swarm Intelligence for, what's it, six mana? I think it's five and a blue. That's not playable. I'm never going to get to that point the game's over before then. I don't think that for the most part, most average EDH players think that about Swarm Intelligence. That's still a playable card at six mana. They've just tweaked the other things. So I think that's where you're seeing these cuts. People are still willing to play the big haymakers like... Um, sunbirds invocation or paradox engine those kind of things it's just the other little things whether it's mana rocks you know moving down to the two mana slot or green ramp spells moving to the two mana slot that kind of thing so i think you're seeing a few more of those adjustments but people are still absolutely willing to run the big battle cruiser type win cons like matt said uh, Dana, I just wanted to let you know that Swarm Intelligence
2: is actually seven mana, which therefore means that your entire <laughs> argument is invalid. Six, is it six, six and
1: one? Ah, all right. <laughs> uh,
2: so really quick, I also wanted to get into, there are a couple of metrics that we weren't able to get graphs for, we weren't able to measure at this time but I still wanted to ask about them. So for example, EDH rec, we're not at this point able to measure the number of spot removal spells over time because the type and definition of spot removal can be so wishy-washy, but I just figured I would ask about our own personal metas. Has the number of spot removal spells in your meta increased, decreased over time? Just to, even though we don't have the hard data, just to report on the way that we see the trends in EDH continuing.
1: Yeah, for me, for sure. Because in, in part, one of the things is I kind of had two different metas for a while there, and they've kind of merged into one, the the second of which was was much less um, concerned with removal at all. And as those players have kind of merged into the first meta, they've all definitely added more spot removal um, in order to, you know, just keep up with people removing their things I need to remove things back. Whereas in their previous kind of closed-off bubble, they really didn't, ha- didn't worry about that. So... Just from those people alone, I've seen a shift, but everybody else has too. People have dropped their creature counts down. Um, when I mentioned twenty as my creature count, that's probably much more the average where I play is twenty to the the low twenties. Definitely not twenty five. People are just running more answers versus just running more haymakers.
2: Yeah, that's actually been my experience as well. As the speed of the format, at least to my personal perception, gets faster. It feels as though folks are running a lot more of the pinpoint removal that they need to keep themselves alive.
1: Well I remember driving home after Commander Knight like three or four years ago and you know not every night but like multiple times driving home being like, man that last game I, I can't believe nobody could deal with anything that happened but me being like annoyed that like the other two players weren't dealing with the third player or at least attempting to. And I can't think of the last time I've left commander knight and driven home and thought man no one was doing anything that just doesn't that's not the case anymore everyone is packing spells that can answer problems matt has that been in your experience too
0: um a little bit it really depends for me personally it depends on you know what what the deck is that i'm brewing um some decks i'll you know i'll pack full of answers some of them i'm just like i'm gonna do a thing and stop me if you want but i'm gonna do this thing so it's it's really depends for me I always try to, you know, have an out to every situation. That's probably a big reason that I play so much green and white. Because um, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, like that just has gen- very good generic answers for a lot of different permanent types. So I always like to play some sort of answers just to, to anything. So that hasn't really changed a whole lot for me. But Dana, just off of you know what you were saying, I, I thought of a question. This is probably an entire episode altogether. But do you guys think that the format then has become more or less centric around certain staples, um, or do you think it's kind of become more everybody does their thing and you know they're shifting away from, you know, those uh, you know, path to exile, doom blade, whatever you want to say, kill spells?
1: I think at least where I play, it's a mixture of that. I think I think I've said before, people tend to be very thematic in how they build their decks. It's supposed to be doing a particular thing. So they probably are still, hey, I'm playing a white, I'm definitely packing a path and I'm packing Swords Shares. Um, but because that, that half of their deck that's designed to do the thing is probably unique enough, it doesn't really stand out as a problem. So there's still that cadre of staples that people are running, but the rest of the deck is diverse enough that it offsets it. Whereas I think if it was an environment where people were playing good stuff decks, in that case it's all staples for the most part. So I think you, you might see more of that. But at least where I play the repetitive kind of staple thing is offset by people building thematic decks, trying to do a specific win con.
2: Yeah, I'm afraid in my experience, I it might be the opposite. I think that the staples might be coming more and more prevalent for my meta, but it, it's tough. It's not a, a thing that I've gone out of my way to try and, and take notes on, to try and observe Um so right now it is a very biased answer for my perception, but I feel like I see those those staples everywhere now as more and more of my friends are able to afford Path to Exiles and such. But I'm, I'm not really sure. And so if we are ever able to get data on the number of spot removal spells, that would definitely be interesting. Another metric that we weren't able to measure this time is basic land counts. And I'm kind of curious, just in your guys' experience, has the number of basic lands that you tend to run gone up, gone down? What do you think?
0: For me, it's gone up. I... I spent a lot of time trying to min-max and playing every duel available and every whatever, but I've kind of shifted away from that. Just at some point, like, you're going to have so many decks, if you're like me at least, and you like building a lot of decks, it just gets expensive. And so I've kind of shifted down a little bit. Playing a lot more basics, playing a few more two-color decks outside of the Moldrotha that I'll be building soon because the commander's going to be free. Yeah, I've kind of shifted back towards a lot more basics for myself personally, even in like my Edgar Markov decks, uh, I have a Enlightened Tutor, whatever that guy is, uh, and Land Tax, so I try to get Land Tax out fairly, you know, fairly early, fairly often, um, and that needs a lot of basics to, to work well. So even in my three-color decks, I'm kind of trying to keep my basic land count fairly high, getting away from the duels. Yeah,
2: that's been the case for me too, that the tempo is becoming more and more of a thing that I'm aware of. I am no longer running a whole bunch of lands that will enter tapped, like check lands or buddy lands or however you say it, or the battle lands from X set or cycling lands or even temples. Like those are all things that I've tended to move away from because as the format feels to me like it's getting faster in my meta, I want to make sure that I'm not losing out on tempo and that I can play spells on my curve as i need to to do to keep up with all of the people that are playing a little bit faster over time. Uh, Dana, what's your experience been?
1: Well, in when in my meta first kind of formed, there was, you know, maybe six or so people playing, one of whom had one deck and it was a mono red deck that had both Magus of the Moon and Blood Moon in it. So just from the get-go playing publicly, i always made it a point man i need to have at least like 12 to 14 basics in the stack or I'm just going to get screwed by a Blood Moon. And even though that player no longer plays there, and I I probably haven't seen a Blood Moon. I mean, I, occasionally one pops up, but like the meta is so big, I just don't play. I don't see enough mono red decks that frequently that it becomes an issue. I still, that's my rule of thumb. I need to have 12 basics in my deck. So I just haven't changed that. I, I started playing that way initially to save myself and haven't moved away from it
2: and the last metric that we weren't able to measure was the price of decks and i'm uh, i'm kind of interested in what you guys think the average price of a deck do you think that it's gone up over time do you think it's gone down obviously we can't measure it but in your personal deck building experiences do you think you've been putting more money into commander less money what do you think
1: dear god more yeah <laughs> I, mean, I, I i will say like the, the the first night i played at the shop i've been playing with a friend in, in private we've been playing commander but like when we first went to the shop and the first literally the first time we had somebody sit down and play he opened with volcanic island into something else and the second game he opened land into candelabra of Thanos. And I, I remember thinking, no. like, I am never, ever going to have a deck worth as much as that Candelabra, and I'm never going to be able to run duels in a deck. That's just never going to happen. And I'm running duels in every one of my decks now. <laughs> like, that was just a lie oh. I told myself. So absolutely, in my case, I- even ignoring, like, the decks I've foiled out, and the cards I look at, once upon a time, would have been like, oh, man, $10, that's a lot to pay for a card. That's, $10 is just something you put in your deck automatically, <laughs> So. Absolutely, that's changed for me, at least. Yeah, sort of to your story. I did
2: sit down in a, a card shop, play Game Commander just a, a while ago, really. But it was against a Brea player, and he drops some Black Border duels and then like Chrome Mox Ooh. exiling, if I'm remembering the correct type of mocks that that is but it's one of those mana rocks that you have to imprint something a, a card onto it he exiles like a foil force of will if that's a thing like I, I don't know my memory on it is a little hazy but i'm pretty sure his first turn cost over a thousand dollars
0: your brain was just spinning was, with all the flexing that he was just laying down on the table
2: yeah and later he played a ravages of war because armageddon like apparently was too little that's, money for that deck it that's was uh, Pleasant talk man it was, uh, it was pretty impressive, but I think, Dana, I'd also have to agree with you in my personal experience, the money that goes into my decks is embarrassingly only ever higher and higher. That said, uh, there maybe it goes back and forth, I'm not entirely sure, but every time that I build an expensive deck, I feel like the deck that I build immediately after it tends to be a lot on the cheaper side. After I built Gitrog, Monster, which is a lot of fun, and I have things like Crucible to Worlds in that deck, for example and Azusa, who used to be very expensive, things like that. As soon as I was done building that deck, the next one that I built was and Tiro, and I built that one intentionally to be full of a bunch of low-powered Dirtle stuff to try and throw people off for political reasons. It's like, oh, don't hurt me. I'm very, all of my stuff is very non-threatening. And then I would win with some ridiculous cheap card they'd never heard of. But the point is, I guess, it seems to be kind of a a pendulum for me, where I build an expensive deck, I build a cheap deck, I build an expensive deck, I build a cheap deck. I am wondering, though, if that pendulum is swinging back and forth, whether it is still going up over time or down over time when you average them all out. And it would be interesting mm-hmm. to see if we can ever get a metric at looking at the price of decks, which is just so difficult to measure because prices do change all the time.
0: Yeah, well, we do have a filter. One thing to remember on on the, the deck pages, when you're looking at the themes... We have a way to look at the top 10% on the average deck cost and the bottom 10% on the average deck cost for each commander. Um, So it's something that we know we can track. It's just finding a way to to show it in a meaningful way. I think that's the tricky part that Don was kind of caught up on. But you can filter it out. Just if you guys are looking for budget cards to add, we do have a filter for that.
1: Yeah, that's a really useful tool. I will say specifically the big change I've seen is in terms of dual lands. Not that I don't see, you know, things like Mana Crypt pop-up or Crucible pop-up, but like by and large, the average deck has an added Crucible or has an added Mana Crypt, but the average deck where I play has averaged a duel. It has added a dual land. So that's been the big change I've seen in terms of deck price is people find their deck, they get it tweaked where they want, they fall in love with it, and then, okay, this is my baby. I'm going to buy a duel for it. So that's the thing that I've really seen in terms of deck prices as people picking up those ABUR duels.
0: Yeah, that's that's definitely a moment I've kind of noticed too. Like, I remember when I bought, you know, a Taiga for my Omnath deck. It's kind of like a, a rite of passage for a deck that like, yep, this is a deck I'm keeping now. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. That's. I, 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 yeah, I've seen that. It's definitely a thing. Alrighty, well those were some statistics that we don't have at this moment, but we do have
2: some statistics that we can challenge. This is a segment that I really enjoy, where we just pick a card that we think should probably be seeing less play than it currently is, or more play than it currently is. Matt, do you want to start us off for challenging the stats?
0: I can. So, in my head-to-head, I kind of had two cards that I thought were overplayed, shouldn't be getting near as much love to, kind of bad lands. Uh, But I have a card that I really like, and I think should be played a little bit more, uh, and that is Blighted Woodland. So Blighted Woodland, uh, it only goes in green decks, I'll give you that. Uh, But it's only played currently in 12,391 decks. So not near as many decks as either Evolving Wilds or Temple of False God. But one thing that, you know, you should note about it is you don't really miss a land drop. You don't get anything tapped. It does itself tap for a colorless mana. And then later on, you can use it as a spell. It's one of those spell lands. So you can pay three and a green and tap it. So essentially five mana to search for two basic lands and put them on the battlefield. If Evolving Wilds can get play in 86,000 decks, then Surely Blighted Woodland, especially with Moldrotha coming out, and you can abuse those spell lands all you want. If those two bad lands can get that much play, uh, Surely Blighted Woodland, if you want the landfall triggers, it's great. Uh, If you want to get two different basics, you know, Myriad Landscape is a similar card uh, that's played in 27,000 decks. Uh, But you have to get two basics of the same type. Blighted Woodlands, you don't have that restriction, so it's a little more expensive, sure, but it's a little more open, too. I think it should be getting played in a lot more decks. If Evolving Wilds can get played in almost 90,000 decks, surely Blighted Woodland can break the 20,000 mark.
2: You said Evolving Wilds and Temple of the Falls called were bad lands. They're not bad lands. Badlands is a dual land. Come on.
0: Yeah. Okay, fine. Terrible lands.
1: (laughs) There really isn't much downside of Buddywood ones either. Like even if you never use any never crack it, it's still a land that comes into play that you can tap for mana immediately. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mirrored Landscape, which is a card I like, but you know, when you when you top deck Mirrored Landscape on turn ten, it's a land that comes into play tap, and that's just what it is. You can't. There's no way around that. Whereas but a Woodlands, if you you never plan on using it, well, it's a mana source immediately.
2: All righty, Dana. I see your pick this week is also a land. Do you want to walk us through it? Sure.
1: And talking about trending is what kind of got me thinking of this particular card, because one of the trends I've started making changes uh, for in my own decks is adding a third land removal land. And for the most part, I've been adding Dust Bowls to my deck. And Dust Bowl is a land that comes in play, not tapped. You can tap it for a colorless, or you can tap it and spend three mana to destroy to sacrifice one of your lands and destroy target land. So the reason this is in 4,000 decks, actually 4,100 on EDH Rack, the reason I think it should be in more is because in the last calendar year, just the last calendar year, we've had Lotus Vale, which is a flip land off, off um, Ixalan, but it's a land that taps for three mana, We've had Itlamak, Cradle of the Sun, which is also a flip land, but it's a better guy's Cradle when it flips. We've gotten Primal Wellspring, which copies a spell when flipped. We've got Vault of Catwakan, which is a Thelarian Academy when it flips. And like those are the ones that those lands need to be removed when they come into play, or you're going to lose the game. And that's just the ones that are backbreaking. That's not even counting stuff like Cabal Stronghold in a Mono Black deck, which winds up being a Cabal Coffers pretty much in that deck, or if you're playing a Graveyard deck, someone drops a Scavenger Grounds. Like There are so many utility lands right now that you just can't let stick around. And Dust Bowl lets you remove it, and it lets you still have the option to remove the next awful one if it comes into play that you need to get rid of. So having that as an option, I've been really pleased with adding that as my third land removal land.
2: In particular, what shocks me, I mentioned I have a Gitrog Monster deck earlier, and if we look at the decks that are currently being built for Gitrog Monster, only 25% of Gitrog Monster decks are running that Dust Bowl, which seems like it'd be really, really useful in that deck to not only destroy one of your lands to get rid of someone else's awesome land, but then Gitrog will also draw you a card for it. But the other land that I'd like to compare this to at this time is actually Field of Ruin, which came out in Ixalan, which allows you to pay two, tap, sacrifice it, and destroy target non-basic land an opponent controls. But then each player searches their library for a basic land card, puts it onto the battlefield, and shuffles their library. That is currently showing up in 56% of Gitrog monster decks. And I would argue that it's a lot worse than Dust Bowl because it helps out every opponent after you destroy one land, whereas Dust Bowl, just you get rid of one land and you get rid of one of the most fearsome lands that they've got like their pretend guy cradle or their actual guy cradle or things like that so i would totally agree dust bowl should totally see more play
0: yeah i like that pick a lot too
1: and there's been times with that dust bowl like i'm running it in a deck that's running um i've just forgotten the name of it now i'm um, drawn yard temple and there's been times when i've sacked drawn temple to dust bowl to kill someone's guy's cradle and then been able to re- replay the Sacked Land for three mana to bring that Drawn Yard Temple back. Or to bring back, you know, if you're playing, like, what's the trader deck? You sacrifice one of your Artifact Lands, and then some, when something dies, that comes back to your hand. So, like, there's also added utility with it in some decks where it has value that just running, you know, Tectonic Edge in that slot might not have.
2: So, speaking of bringing things back, my pick this week is going to be Twilight's Call. Specifically, I'm talking about a Maran of Clan Nelth Toth deck, or really any awesome reanimator deck, because you know me, I love graveyards. Twilight's Call is a six mana sorcery for four black black that you can actually play as an instant if you pay two additional mana, but the key part of this spell is that it allows every player to return all creatures from their graveyard to play. That maybe doesn't sound great, or maybe it does if you're a necromancer like me. If you're playing something like Maron of Clan Neltoth or Mimeoplasm or any specifically reanimator strategy, guaranteed, if you're doing your stuff right, you're going to have a lot more creatures in your graveyard than anyone else will have in theirs. So that's a spell that should show up a whole lot more than it currently does. Specifically for Maron of Clan Neltoth, it actually doesn't show up on her page at all. It doesn't seem like it shows up in any Maron of Clan Neltoth decks which I just think is wrong. About 28% of Marin decks are currently running the spell Living Death, which is fairly similar. It's a five-mana spell that switches all creatures in play with all creatures in graveyards. And like I mentioned, that's showing up in about 28% of decks, and I think that Twilight's Call could show up in about the same percentage. And honestly, I think that they both should be played a whole lot more. Marin loves graveyards, and if you can bring back a ton of creatures all at once, that's going to be a ton of value that it will be really hard for your opponents to come back
1: from. I've never actually played Twilight's Call, but it's a card, I, I think I picked up a foil of it last year in someone's binder for like a buck, because I'm like, that's a cool card and I could see myself running it, and I've never actually ran it.
2: Yeah, I've, I've used that thing to bring back a Grey Merchant of Asphodel, a Kokosho, a Seer, a bunch of d- Acidic Slime, and Reclamation Sage, and it just drained a ton of life all at once, destroyed two of the biggest problems on the board for me, and the biggest thing that an opponent got back was like a Woodfall Primus, which destroyed one of my cards. It was, yeah, every time that I've played it, it's been an awesome blowout. So if you're a Necromancer, definitely give that card a consideration. Alrighty, boys, do we have any other final last minute thoughts about the way that the trending data is going for EDH?
0: No, I think that we kind of pointed out you know, something to, t- to definitely keep an eye on with Dominaria coming out. I think that'll be the big shift that, uh, or the next big shift, I guess, uh, coming up in the here, you know, next few months or so.
1: Yeah, I think the, the training date is interesting to keep an eye on, and there's actually a lot more I think we should dig in at a future date, um, maybe get even more specific and drill down more. But I think it's, it's a good thing to keep an eye on in terms of your own deck building as well. And it's just interesting, I think.
2: Yeah, definitely. I'm, I am I love seeing the numbers. I like seeing the slopes in those graphs, where things are headed. And it'll be interesting, especially even a couple of years from now to see where those graphs go. If they do taper off, if they continue to go, if there are huge spikes that we didn't expect, it'll be really fascinating to see the way that this data moves over time. But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all?
1: They can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. And if you want to listen to me expound about Commander for another hour, I can be found on the Commander Central podcast at CMDR Central.
0: And I'm on Twitter at uh, Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S 55. Uh, same as all your other social medias. And uh, shoot us an email too. You know, We, we would love to hear from you guys and get any ideas on future segments or anything else like that too.
2: Yeah. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. You can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC and the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or a request for a new site feature. P.S. If the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway. So head on over there and smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize. We're also doing a giveaway for the EDHREC cast Twitter page once we hit 1,000 followers. So be sure to check out the EDHREC cast on Twitter as well. As Dana mentioned, you can check out his other podcast at cmdrcentral.libson.com you can check us out at edhreccast.lipson.com or on youtube or you can contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com you can also now find us on itunes and if you do please consider leaving us a review to help us boost our visibility and help other folks find the podcast you can find this podcast and more on edhrec's very own community content spotlight section where we feature as many other content creators as we can from command zone to commander's brew to commander versus not to mention new articles published every day by edhrec's very own fantastic team of writers we'll be back at you next week with more Data and insights, and until then, remember EDH, wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.
0: <laughs> Quit giggling like a schoolgirl.
2: <laughs> I giggle like a schoolboy, thank you very much. Oh man, Ken's gonna use that for the outro now. Isn't right, he?
0: exactly. Probably.